You're listening to Dental Talk from VivaLearning.com. Welcome to Dental Talk. I'm Dr. Phil Klein. Typically, our podcasts involve a discussion between myself and a KOL or subject matter expert. But for this episode series with Dr. John Molinari, we have created three 30-minute segments, which are excerpts from his recent infection control presentation. This episode, part one of three, addresses COVID-19 vaccines, the latest CDC updates, and lots of information on hand hygiene. Each of the three episodes covers relevant information that directly pertains to things you should be aware of regarding your infection control protocol in your dental office. In light of the pandemic, Dr. Molinari, one of the most respected experts in infection control in hospital, clinic, and dental office settings, covers the latest guidelines to practicing safely and in ways that will bode well in front of an OSHA inspector. Please welcome Dr. John Molinari. Well, good afternoon. My name is John Molinari. I'm a microbiologist. Before we get started, I would like to thank uh, SICAN from Coltine SICAN uh, for sponsoring this. In particular, uh, Doug Brandley, uh, Jeff Walsh, Mike Etheridge, who set this up with Viva Learning. Uh, I really appreciate it, and I hope this is worthwhile for you all. What I was going to start with is just a very brief overview as to uh, where we are currently with the COVID-19 pandemic and a couple of words on uh, the vaccine uh, situation. Uh, We are going to have some time at the end of the course uh, for uh, chats and questions. And so I'll be happy to answer questions at that time if you have them on vaccine, for example, uh, if that's not the major intent of this course. What I want to start with, though, as I said, is is an update as to where we are. We've had some encouraging news, of course, over the last month and a half, uh, where we've seen a dramatic decline in cases uh, from where we were uh, in December and beginning of January. Understand, though, we started at a very high level. We still have the highest number of deaths in the world. Uh, We still have a very large number of cases to come down from. But we have made progress. We have made progress. People are responding, I believe. And also, of course, we've had the vaccines, which are making a great difference. The idea is to cut down on the number of susceptible hosts as rapidly as possible so that this does not continue or increase. But we have made progress. You see, however, the hold that this pandemic has taken globally. We have seen incredible cases and deaths and illness. Thank God for our healthcare worker heroes in the hospitals who have taken care of people and who have lowered the death rate by caring for these people and bringing them through. This is the worst pandemic since the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918-1919. And you notice how rapidly the number of cases exploded uh, with this highly infectious respiratory virus. With regard to vaccines, as I said, I'm not going into detail, but one of the good things, one of the excellent things that has happened uh, is soon after this virus was isolated, right at the beginning in January, uh, manufacturers from uh, countries around the world uh, made it a priority to develop a uh, COVID-19 vaccine. And as a result, we have had multiple countries uh, developing various types of technologies and vaccine platforms to come up with uh, effective coronavirus vaccines. And you can see at the top the number of vaccines that are currently being tested, uh, expanded, uh, uh, early limited use. Uh, We've even had vaccines that were uh, in in early clinical trials that were were dropped because of safety concerns or efficacy concerns. 
there are very, very strict high criteria for this. Uh, we, of course, have had uh, two uh, vaccines that have been going on for a while now in the U.S., the Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna, messenger RNA vaccines. Uh, thank God the uh, Johnson & Johnson viral vector COVID vaccine was approved uh, in the U.S. for emergency use. But you see other countries are already using their own versions of coronavirus vaccines. So we, we need everybody on deck for this. I just want to say a word about the two mesa vaccines that are out there because I know there are still some people that are concerned about this. Uh, sometimes uh, I get questions from healthcare workers whether they think it's safe or not. This is a uh, messenger RNA vaccine. It doesn't contain intact virus, both the Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna. And what happens is the messenger RNA that codes for the synthesis of the spike protein, the viral antigen that we want to produce antibodies against, is uh, coated uh, with a lipid delivery system, lipid nanoparticles. People have asked, well, why do we have to do this? Why can't we just inject the messenger RNA? You can't, because if you just inject naked messenger RNA, the RNAase enzymes in our system will degrade it. So the nanoparticles that code it actually protect it and allow it to get into the cells so that it can replicate outside of the nuclear material and then it can actually instruct the ribosomes of these cells to produce spike proteins. This is, this is an incredible technology. And this is, this is very, very good technology to allow us to, to tweak it, to develop boosters as we need them. And companies are already doing this, which is nice. This messenger RNA is not incorporated into the cell DNA. That's important. And um, it, it actually codes for the synthesis of the spike proteins by the cell ribosomes and then the immune system responds against it. We have been doing better vaccinating. Of course, we started after Israel and the United Kingdom. Uh, this is as of today, as to the vaccine doses uh, placed into the arms of uh, people in different countries. And you see, we are uh, 23.51 people per 100, uh, 100 individuals. Israel is uh, much higher. U uh, UK, of course, also started uh, earlier on. With regard to infection control, I start with this typically. Uh, this is basic information. I'm sure that you all know this, but understand that microorganisms have very specific ways of infecting and causing problems, uh, causing infection, et cetera, uh, sympt symptomatic disease. What we look at is we look at how these things are passed. Uh, are there reservoirs? Uh, what is the uh, portal of exit? And where it impacts healthcare we look at developing infection control protocols that break that chain of cross-contamination, cross-infection at multiple places. And that's important because there isn't just one phase that's gonna stand alone by itself. They all are important. And that brings us to the issue of compliance. Compliance with appropriate infection control protocols is huge because one week link, if you will, in your uh, infection control program can actually undo uh, much of what you're trying to do. And so we look at multiple things that we're doing and we have choices and that's good. We of course follow infection control guidelines that are developed on science. Anybody who knows me knows I'm, I'm a bug on science and the actual uh, applications of science. We don't always have the answers, but we can apply scientific principles and get some good understanding. The guidelines that, believe it or not, we still follow to a great extent 
of the 2003 CDC Infection Control Guidelines for Dentistry. I was on one of the advisory committees for that, uh, uh, worked with incredibly talented people, uh, especially from the CDC and, and, and medical area. And that's important because so much of our information, uh, early infection control in particular, has come about as a result of medical experiences in hospitals, for example. Microorganisms are transmitted the same way. Uh, in medicine and dentistry, it may be to a different degree, or you may have more uh, responsive hosts or more susceptible hosts, but they're transmitted the same way. And we get a lot of our information. The dental literature has increased dramatically. Well, those principles that went into the 2003 document still stand for the most part. What the CDC did in 2016 is they came out with a supplement, if you will, not a rewrite, but a supplement to add to the information in the 2003 guidelines. As I said, the basic principles really haven't changed. There are some new technologies, for example, with slow speed hand pieces that now required us to uh, uh, clean and reprocess them between patients because of evidence that they can collect debris and expel debris under certain conditions. That came out after 2003. There has been uh, an incredible amount of information on dental water lines and dental water line infection control, which we'll talk about later on. That went into this. But the CDC published this much shorter supplement in 2016, and it's very nice. There are a couple of things that I really like about it that I'm just asking you to take a look at. If you haven't seen it already, and probably if most, if not all of you have seen it. If you haven't, you can go to cdc.gov and then look up infection control guidelines for dentistry and you'll see this, it's, it's very nice. One of the things I like is that for each section in infection control, they have this little cliff note version here. Uh, that's nice. Uh, and that it, it just has quick little bullet points about what is recommended. And you don't have to read through paragraphs. It's just quick little bullet points and that's fine because that way you can take a look and see about where you are. The other part that is very nice that I like is that the document has a series of checklists. These happen to be checklists for dental water lines. I like this because this allows you in the privacy and confidentiality of your own office to do periodic reviews of your compliance with the appropriate infection control recommendations by the CDC, ADA, et cetera. You're not having somebody coming in from OSHA or state boards or somebody looking over your shoulder and picking out what's wrong or whatever. This allows you to monitor on your own your infection control protocols and compliance. And I know many of you are doing this. This is nice because now you can have a record of this. So if somebody comes in your office and says, well, how do you know uh, that you're up to date with this, this, and that? Uh, funny you should ask. And you have it right there. I know I'm, I'm an old time paper person, so I'm going to a file cabinet and pulling it out, but many of you probably put this online to save it. Let's look at the areas of infection control. And the first one, of course, is, is the single most important thing that you do every day, multiple times a day, hand hygiene. Uh, used to be called hand washing uh, back in the day, but now it's hand hygiene because of the introduction decades ago of the waterless high alcohol hand antiseptics. Why is this important? Well, it's been shown to be important for so many decades. There were multiple uh, excellent studies in hospitals done years and years ago that showed that about two-thirds of hospital-acquired infections 
were related to improper hand care and, and hand washing. And there were reported outbreaks of infections that were transmitted from healthcare worker hands to patients and then from patient to patient, even with the use of gloves. I can remember seeing this in the hospital when I was with my infectious disease colleagues, or I was in the dental department, so the oral surgery department as a consultant, where we would be seeing people not wash their hands for the appropriate period of time, or people would be putting on gloves without washing their hands, things that things that we know so much more about now. What has really changed and helped hand hygiene to assist in compliance was the advent of these high alcohol, waterless hand antiseptics that came out decades ago. And now you see these, you see these everywhere. Uh, so the term hand hygiene was introduced uh, from hand washing. Guidelines related to their proper usage and properties and various other properties have been included in multiple infection control guidelines, and they work, and they work. The key for hand hygiene is it's very effective. You do it so frequently, but you need to make sure about compliance. And we've already seen a problem now in hospitals, and we've seen a problem in laboratories because of the research done with this. Uh, one of the things I'll mention here is a very common and increasingly common uh, hospital-acquired pathogen, Enterococcus faecium, uh, has become evidently more resistant or tolerant to the high alcohol hand antiseptics. These were studies that were done in laboratories, but they've done some observational studies in medical settings. What they looked at was the fact that uh, earlier strains isolated of this organism in the early 2000s were much more sensitive to the high alcohol hand antiseptics than strains isolated after 2009 to 2015, showing that these things uh, needed to be exposed longer if that was what the issue was. And part of it was compliance. Think about all the times that you watch people use these. Uh, are they doing 15 to 20 seconds? No, they're doing what we used to call the, the quickie doctor's wash, you know, three to five seconds, uh, which is not long enough for some of these more resistant organisms, especially in medical settings. We're going to look at the uh, misuse of high alcohol waterless antiseptics. We see this routinely, and I'll talk about that in a moment. And where people are using these, inappropriately and not taking care of their hands with water-based lotions, for example, we see an increasingly common uh, irritation, dermatitis, uh, which is probably the most common form of hand dermatitis that, that we typically see. Unfortunately, another issue is the fact that we're still having some of these counterfeit uh, hand hygiene antiseptic products that, that contain methanol, a very, very dangerous. Methanol is a very toxic alcohol uh, that can be absorbed through the skin, cause tissue toxicity, uh, and all sorts of systemic problems. We've even had people drinking this stuff and hospitalized and even deaths related to this. Proper use of these has been known for many decades, and it is included in our guidelines. Again, this is from 2003 guideline, and it basically says, if hands are visibly soiled, blood, bloody saliva, in a hospital, urine, vomit, feces, exudate, you need to wash with soap and water or an antimicrobial soap and water to mechanically remove the debris. You do not use a high alcohol hand antiseptic on visibly soiled hands. The reason is really very straightforward. The chemistry of alcohol says that it denatures proteins and dehydrates protein. So it is not a cleaner. It is to be used on hands that are not soiled. You as dental professionals, you have 
multiple choices, of course, because you wear gloves and you can wash your hands and you can use these periodically and it works, but you need to use the products correctly. The high alcohol hand antiseptics are excellent, but they only can be used on non-soiled hands. We talked a little bit about skin sensitivities with irritation dermatitis. Uh, one of the things to understand is that you need to be careful how you use these, of course. Um, some of you may have some real problems uh, with the high alcohol hand antiseptics or even the uh, soaps. Why? One of the issues with soaps is that uh, many of them for general public use uh, contain a lot of scented material, a lot of high concentrations of fragrances. We all want to smell nice. That's great. Uh, but one of the problems is because you use these things so many times during the day, washing your hands, waterless products, etc., the high fragrance products can cause uh, increased epithelial permeability on the hands and leach out the oils and lipids. And for some of you with very sensitive skin or fair skin, especially during the uh, winter months when it's pretty, pretty dry, you can actually develop an irritation dermatitis, which, which can create a problem. And that's, that's not good. I'll, I'll talk about some things to correct that in a little bit. When we look at how to uh, manage compliance with different products, I'll typically start with hand washing because that's what I was raised in. And that's, that, to me, that's, that's the one I'm most comfortable with still. Uh, the first hand wash during the beginning of the day, I learned one minute. One minute sets the tone for all the 15 to 20 second procedures that you do later on. Now, one minute's a long time. Some of you may have problems doing that, but do it much, much longer than your routine 15 to 20 second time periods. That sets the stage, your hands, for all of the shorter procedures and really uh, removes a lot of the transient organisms which can cause problems. Uh, notice down here where I say multiple choices, non-antimicrobial soap, antimicrobial soap, uh, alcohol-based antiseptic, all are effective against SARS-CoV-2. That's important. Early on in the pandemic, uh, there were all sorts of questions as to whether this was going to work or that was going to work. Fortunately, SARS-CoV-2 uh, coronaviruses are uh, large uh, lipid-coated viruses. They're envelope viruses, and that makes them very susceptible to anionic detergents. And so what you use has to be used effectively, but is effective. This is a, a slide showing you why alcohol hand antiseptics are uh, used often with the term preferred. Not required, but preferred. That's important. They're preferred because they work so readily. They work so rapidly. It saves time. You don't have to wash. You don't have to rinse. You don't have to dry, et cetera, save paper towels, things like this. They do work well. Your antimicrobial soaps, of course, not only are antimicrobial, but they're also excellent mechanical debriders because you're washing your hands. And just the, just the basic hand washing is an excellent mechanical debridement of germs and debris on your hands. Plain soap, for example, doesn't have any microbial component, uh, but it is a, a very good mechanical debrider. You can remove uh, well over 98% of the potential problems from your hands just by washing hands appropriately. There are many new types of products coming out, especially some of these um, waterless uh, antiseptics. After leaving the dental school in Detroit and, and going to Dental Advisor, I was able to be in, in the lab uh, where we did a lot of infection control projects, uh, third-party evaluations for 
uh, companies that were uh, looking to get products on the market or looking for reevaluations and evaluations to make sure that these products were doing what they were supposed to do. Sort of like a third-party evaluation. It was very good. I guess I've always been a lab rat, and it was, it was just very exciting again. Well, one of the things that, that we looked at, of course, were these high-alcohol hand antiseptics. And using a, a classic glove juice study where you put surgical gloves on, uh, pipette broth in there, and then collected the, uh, the material uh, from your hands and culture it, you could see the effect of a 15-second uh, high-alcohol hand antiseptic wash on the concentrations of bacteria on the hands. This is important, and compliance is important because you're always touching things. And I know that we're talking about you in practice, but obviously you're not in practice all the time. And so you're, you're touching things all the time and picking stuff up. You don't realize what's out there. We live in a world of microorganisms. Uh, I took a dollar bill, rubbed it all over my hands, uh, put sterile gloves on, uh, pipetted broth into the gloves, and, and then palpated the hands and then cultured uh, what was uh, in, in the fluid that we got out from my hands. You don't want to know what's on a dollar bill. The multiple types of gram-negative fecal bacteria, the mold, the fungus. I, I couldn't do any of the chemical analysis because I'm obviously not qualified to do that. But this is this, this is life. You just have to be careful what what you're doing to make sure that you're doing it the right way. I mentioned that some of you may have a problem uh, with some of these products, especially those of you that have very fair skin, very mild skin. And uh, especially sometimes this becomes a problem during the cold months where hands can be very dry. The alcohol-based hand antiseptics are very, very good, of course. They work well. There's a ton of data on this. But for some of you, you may have a problem with this where you may have some dry skin and some irritation dermatitis from this. Understand that there are non-alcohol-based waterless hand antiseptics that are out there that have been approved. Benzylconium chloride is most typically the uh, active ingredient in these. It's a, it's, it's a relatively narrow spectrum antimicrobial, but it does take care of the overwhelming majority of common organisms that we would find on the, on the skin, on the hands. There's been a lot of research on this and more research going on. Uh, the APEC Journal, American Journal of Infection Control, has had a number of articles on these in recent years showing that these do the job. So for people who are having a problem with the waterless alcohol-based antiseptics, there are alternatives. This is something that you want to protect against. You don't want to have your hands having broken down epithelium like we see here. This is intact epithelium. These are all factors that can cause epithelial uh, breakdown and irritation dermatitis, such as we see here. One of the things you have to be careful of is that if your hands are starting to show this redness, especially on the knuckles uh, or areas of the hand uh, that, that are really dry, you need to make sure that when you wash in particular, you rinse properly because the soap will more tenaciously attach onto this uh, damaged epithelium. And if you don't remove it, you rinse, you dry, uh, you think it's all set, you put your gloves on, you actually perspire, you reactivate that soap, and that's where that itching and extended more dermatitis occurs. Fortunately, there are a number of water-based products available uh, to help you with some of these. There are a variety of water-based lotions, water-based products during the day uh, versus petroleum-based lotions because petroleum-based lotions can react with the latex and even some of the nitrile gloves. 
where we look at what you are doing in other areas. Sharp safety, of course, is a primary infection control goal. Uh, those of you who are employers, uh, you have uh, various precautions in place. Uh, you make sure people are doing single-hand recapping. You have recapping devices. Uh, many of these exposures uh, that people have are preventable. You need to have protocols as to uh, how, how you handle sharps. Over the years, I think you have, you have done an increasingly good job trying to reduce the potential for percutaneous injuries. Some of you can't remember the last time you had a sharps injury. That's great. That's great. Uh, some of you listening to this made the professional and financial commitment of having cassettes. That cuts down on the handling of individual uh, stacks of sharps uh, with gloves, maybe that weren't utility gloves like they're supposed to be. Uh, and, and, and people have had accidents uh, with hand scrubbing. So cassette use actually cuts down or eliminates the necessity for hand scrubbing. You have been safer with regard to how you're recapping. When we look at sharps accidents, typically the most serious types of sharps accidents are the needle sticks because they have a hollow bore. There's a lumen. Potentially infectious fluid can be in there. Most of your accidents with sharps, when you have them, are going to be solid sharps, burrs, scalers, probes, wires, much less potentially infectious fluid on the outside of a solid sharp than the lumen of a needle. Um, most of your accidents occur outside the patient's mouth, uh, obviously during cleanup, uh, back when uh, maybe when people were hand scrubbing instruments and, and they would nick themselves. Things die outside the body. HIV dies very, very rapidly outside the body, thank God. Um, typically, the overwhelming majority of dental accidents occur involve small amounts of blood, certainly much smaller than we've seen in some of the hospital accidents where there can be much, much larger volumes and a greater risk of potential bloodborne infection. And your needles are smaller, 25 to 30 gauge needles uh, versus the 18 to 20 gauge uh, larger ones that we see in hospital accidents with larger lumens. What you need to make sure you have just in case, and also because it's the law, is to make sure that you have A, a post-exposure management plan, B, a post-exposure management plan that people know about and that is in place and everybody understands what the components are. These are the types of things that when uh, an OSHA inspector or some other uh, evaluator comes into a practice or a clinical facility, they, they will look for this and they will make sure as they talk to individual people in the practice that they understand what is involved in these, what to do in case of an accident. So all of these factors here, all of these components need to be included, and they are. In your infection control protocol, do you have post-exposure management plans? It's the employer's place that the people in the practice understand exactly the different components of this. Is the employer or the practice uh, asking patients where they, when they have an accident in the, uh, during treatment uh, to go get tested? Of course, the practice will pay for it. You know, Ms. Jones, Mr. Smith, uh, we're very sorry about the accident. Uh, would you be willing to go to this facility that we have a contract with to go get tested for hep B, hep C, HIV? If they're willing to do that and they're negative, everybody feels better about it. That's important. What you're also asked to look at is make sure that you keep up on latest updates. I think you've been doing it, but maybe you need a reminder. Uh, in 2000, 2001, there was an update to the blood bone pathogen standard which was the Needle Stick Safety and Prevention Act. And this um, 
obviously talked about uh, uh, engineering controls, work practice controls, like I, like I mentioned earlier about recapping needles and having a sharps injury log that's up to date, et cetera. But one of the things that you're asked to do is to do, on a, uh, do an evaluation on, an, uh, on, a, on a yearly basis here to see if there's any new safer sharps devices which may be able to be used in your practice to further reduce the potential for sharps accidents. And this is something where uh, you as the employer, uh, you as the uh, clinical personnel in a practice are all involved in this. Uh, you may talk to your distributor, you may talk to BD, you may talk to 3M and to see if there's anything out there, a self-sheathing syringe or, or a covered scalpel uh, that, that could be of use in your practice. A number of these things have been developed for use in hospital settings, and they may not be applicable for you, but some could be. And so it's incumbent upon you to do this annual evaluation look uh, to see if there is anything out there. Uh, if there isn't, then filling out the forms that different states have for these is relatively easy. You looked, you, you checked all around, you did this, you did that, and there wasn't anything available or what was out there wasn't applicable. Fine. But if there is, you still have these forms to fill out. And I know there are people here from all over the country. Uh, I've, I found that different states uh, have, have different evaluation forms. So check to see uh, what you have. And you keep this in a file. So again, if somebody comes in and says, uh, are, you, are you familiar with such and such a, a product that, that, that may be of use to you? You would say, yes, we're using it or no. Uh, we, we looked at it. We didn't think it was applicable to our practice but you do need to do this on an annual basis. When we look at the current uh, pandemic and the modifications that you have been asked to do, uh, we have to go from the original bloodborne pathogen standard to the recommendations that we see now for COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 viruses. And what we started with years ago was uh, universal precautions. This was something that was in the uh, early 80s and uh, this had to do with blood, blood and other body fluids, but primarily blood. Hepatitis B was uh, shown overwhelmingly to be the major occupational bloodborne pathogen risk for healthcare professionals, especially dental professionals. And you see here that there were uh, extensive data looking at occupational risks that uh, various groups of uh, dental professionals had based on serologic assays, uh, looking for antibodies uh, compared to uh, the incidence of uh, previous infection in the general population. And by the way, I'll just, I'll just mention parenthetically here, one of the nice things for you all was, in my opinion, I think dentistry was the first health profession that responded very well to the original hepatitis B vaccine that came out in 1982. Uh, I, I remember very vividly, and I, I was so proud of uh, my my dental colleagues uh, who were able to get the vaccine very, very early on uh, in, in contrast to some of the other health professional groups.